former U.S. Army paratrooper, historian, and conspiracy analyst, Tony Arterburn, joined by top researchers and guests, exploring the depths of our hidden history, expose the crimes and cover-ups that plague our civilization and planet, and patrol the borders of our reality. 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 From the parapolitical to the paranormal in the psychological war for your body, soul, and mind. Be a paratruther. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Paratruther. I am joined by my Two magnificent researchers, co-host, uh, Mr. Anderson is here. Welcome back to your own show, sir. Hey, Tony. Great to be here. I'm glad you're here for this. And, of course, uh, researcher without peer, Chris Graves, who uh, does so much magnificent work for the gentleman we're going to introduce here in a minute. Uh, welcome to the show, Chris, your own show. Thank you, Mr. Ardburn. Thank you, Mr. Anderson. Thank you, Mr. Donald Jeffries. I... Uh, I apologize because I'm the reason why we're going late right now. So, but I'm oh, here. Don't worry about that. We're just recording, and doesn't matter. Uh, we, <laughs> this, this is we're time travelers. Uh, but, but Chris, up. you're always late. And 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 you stepped on my introduction of the legendary Don Jeffries. But I won't hold that against you. I'm just mm-hmm. going to deduct it from your paratrooper pay, uh, Don. <laughs> The magnificent, legendary Donald Jeffries, my friend. Uh, he's got a new book out, folks. It's called Pipe the Bimbo in Red. It is a book on Dean Andrews, Jim Garrison, and the conspiracy to kill JFK. And if, if you follow my podcast or the feed, when I filled in for David Knight a, a few weeks ago, uh, Don and I did the second hour of the show, and it was all about this. But I had so much fun, and I thought, we need to have a, a show that's not live. I want to bring... Uh, Chris Graves and Mr. Anderson on, and let's let's do a roundtable on this because this is a fascinating subject. Uh, it's a niche part of the uh, JFK assassination, uh, the history of that, and um, it's very important to know the New Orleans connection, uh, not only with people like Dean Andrews and and Clay Shaw or Clay Burcham, uh, David Ferry, you know, the Operation Mongoose, all of that, but it involves Oswald, and uh, I want. To start with that, we've the the title of the book, and I'm sure people are confused, but this is referencing uh, a scene in, in Oliver Stone's JFK, Don, where uh, the great John Candy plays uh, the the uh, character Dean Andrews that in the real life that yes. uh, that you wrote about. Yeah, and that's the, that's a direct quote from it. We we get a lot of comments on the title, and uh, that was we just took it from that. I, we thought it was uh, a particularly uh, you know, descriptive uh, beatnik term, you know, and D- Dean Andrews Jr. is known for his beatnik uh, lingo. And, uh, you know, he says, get the right ta-ta and the wrong toe-toe or something. You know, he has, he has all kinds of great lines. And if you read his Warren Commission testimony, which we actually included his his uh, entire Warren Commission testimony as an appendix to the book because it's it's worth reading. It's uh, unlike pretty much everything else in the 26 volumes of hearings and exhibits, uh, his testimony is the gold standard. It's it's the most interesting testimony of our all by far. It's not even you know you read it, you won't be disappointed. And the beatnik the beatnik lingo helps, so that's why we wanted to kind of throw that in the title so that people would get an idea of uh, his unique mindset he had. Well, he definitely had a unique mindset, but I'd like for you to set up you know for the audience like what Dean Andrews' role because what's fascinating you know, is this phone call that he gets, why he's a, a witness yeah. in the Warren Commission. How, how does Jim Garrison become to know him? I'm, I'm guessing because of the Warren Commission itself, is that it, or is it through the grapevine that he found out about the phone call? And you can explain uh, that as well. What the well, they were, they, they were friends. And uh, like young Dean at the time, Dean the Third, who became my brother's best friend and then my friend, and uh, he was the inspiration for the book. As he said, you know, Jim Garrison used to call their house and say, hello, young Dean, when he'd pick it up. You know, they were buddies. They used to go to the New Orleans Athletic Club together where a lot of the movers and shakers in New Orleans went. So um, 
But I don't, for whatever reason, I'd say, I don't think Garrison had an initial interest in the Kennedy assassination. And that show, Oliver Stone shows that in JFK, where he questioned David Ferry right away about his strange trip to drive to Houston, you know, to go uh, ice skating. So it's so ridiculous, just a completely ridiculous story. But, uh, and it's a great scene in the movie. But after that, he lost interest. And it wasn't until, uh, as, uh, as the film shows on a plane with uh, my hero, Huey Long's son, uh, Senator Russell Long. Uh, he's the one that kind of cued him up. Hey, you know, something's, this is, you know, that Warren Commission's a joke. And uh, so he started reading the, the Warren Commission hearings and exhibits, like a lot of us were doing. I mean, I, me a little bit later than that, but that's what we were doing. And uh, he saw Dean, and I don't think he, maybe he knew Dean Andrews testify, maybe not, but he was a friend of his. But when he read his testimony, he said, wow, this is significant. And he read about the phone call and he said, what is this? So that's when he, you see in the movie, he's trying to t get him to testify about it. What, what was going on here, Dino? And, uh, you know, as you can see, he was dancing all around it. They can crush me like a bug and all that stuff. And uh, But so I think that's uh, Dean Andrews can be credited with really, I think, triggering uh, Dean, uh, Jim Garrison's initial after Russell Long got him interested in the case itself again, that maybe there was something there. That was the, the first part of the Warren Commission's record dean andrews testimony that's what really piqued his interest because he knew dean andrews and he said what, what's going on here why why is he being called in the hospital to represent lee harvey oswell and that's when he looked at his background he said okay dean had had and i i personally again this is me but i think that everybody in that new orleans group and that's what we focus on is i call it the ground level conspiracy and i think all those people were being manipulated now garrison thought and i've believe too that Lee Harvey Oswald was on assignment at the time of the assassination at by the FBI or the CIA, whoever he was working for at the time. And he was told to infiltrate a group that was planning to kill the president. And that was that group in New Orleans. That's who he infiltrated. And that's where all the anti-Castro Cubans came around. I don't think Cuba had anything to do with the assassination, but they had all these people around there to muddy up the waters. And that's who, that's who Oswald was hanging around with constantly because I think he was told to. And I think he was probably told to go see Dean Andrews if you have any legal questions, which he did. He can, can you help me with my dishonorable discharge? Can you help my wife with her immigration? And, and you know, as, as Dean said, he came with all these gay Cuban caballeros, you know, that came in there too, all the, all the gay boys. And, and Dean was a man ahead of his time. I don't think anybody was calling homosexuals gay at that point, but he was. So he knew, he knew the lingo at the time. But uh, so again, I think they, they directed him there for a reason. And I think that's probably why he was the one that was called. I, I don't know what they were intending to do because presumably the conspirators knew they were going to kill Oswald. So why they were trying to you know, set something up for him to represent, I, I don't know. It's, it's a great mystery. And I'm sure he wondered about it too, but there's no question as, as Dean the third says in the book, he said, there's no question that, that Clay Bertrand was Clay Shaw. Well, and let's just go back to, to be clear, Dean Andrews actually represented Oswald you know, what was it a couple of years prior? How, how Not, far back was it? No, it was the summer of 63. Okay. So it's the summer yeah. of 60, summer, yeah. summer of 63. He's working on Oswald's behalf yeah. to, to clear up the, what the issues with the military dishonorable discharge, all that. Right. 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 He's doing little, little work for him. And, you know, as he, as he says, you know, he owed me 25 bucks, you know, so I don't think Oswald paid him. So, uh, but he, in fact, he encountered when Oswald was passing out the pamphlets, you know, on the street, uh, you know, very, again, getting the stage fight with Carl Springer, who's the only one in these, in this mess who's still alive. Carl Springer is in his nineties. He's still living, but I'm, I, you know, I told William, my co-author, William Watson, you know, I'm, I'm not going to call him, you know, cause I like that guy scares me. He's a, he's a scary figure. And, uh, He's been very vocal over the years. You know, he's an extreme right winger, and he thinks Castro killed him. And he's still, whether he's playing a game or not, he's still doing the anti-Castro thing to the hilt. And so he's blaming Castro for the assassination. But he's not. It wouldn't even be productive to talk to him because he's, you know, he's. Uh, I don't know how much he knew. Any, I, I think all those people: David Ferry, uh, Jack Martin, Guy Bannister, who died to, to way too early for Jim Garrison to even question him, and. Uh, uh, even Clay Shaw to some degree. Shaw, I think Shaw was the connection. That's why we focus a lot on Shaw in the book because he, he had lots of powerful connections going back to Operation Paperclip at the end of World War II and uh, Permindex, you know, the huge corporation. So 
I think he was, although I think he was manipulating himself too, because he really would describe his very strange death in the book as well. And it's, it's strange. And uh, so I, I don't think he was above, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, untouchable, but I think he was probably the connection between that ground level conspirators who were all being manipulated, Jack Ruby included, and the, the people above them that were actually the conspirators. So you have Dean Andrews in the summer of 63 representing Oswald on matters of, uh, you know, documents and his service yeah. and all of that. But the phone call that Dean Andrews gets in on November 22nd, 1963 is from a Clay Burcham. Right. And the so Dean Andrews is in the hospital. He gets a phone call from Clay, Clay I'm putting his quotation, Clay Burcham. Because if you right. watch the movie JFK and, of course, you read your work, Clay Shaw is Clay Burcham. Right. And vice versa. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's, and that's what he, and this is why, uh, I mean, if you you look at Dean, Dean Andrews is a, he's a sympathetic figure to me. And a lot of people in the JFK research community don't sympathize with him, but I, and knowing his son, I know what the family went through afterwards. And I know how, what Dean was doing behind the scenes, Dean Jr., the, you know, the beatnik, he, uh, he knew it was a conspiracy and he saw how many people were dying and he didn't want to be a victim either. So he, he decided to lie and say this, you know, as, as he said in one of his great, I like to breathe, you know, <laughs> typical Dean and his slogan. And he uh, so he, he did do that. And he, you know, he ruined his family's life uh, there. All their lives were affected. Dean, Dean, my friend, Dean, the third was uh, on track to go to law school and become a lawyer, too. All that fell apart. His younger brother, who just died uh, maybe a month or two ago, um, lifelong drug addict. And, you know, had never could kick it. And it was all because of what they went through. Cause his father, the father, his father basically went nuts. You know, he would, he would uh, lock the, the, the doors of the house so that the young boy, when he came home from school, he couldn't get inside because he was paranoid. They were going to try to come and get him. And, uh, you know, his wife, I, I met his wife. We had her out for dinner. So we were, I was the first researcher she ever talked to. And uh, she, you know, she still blames her husband and thinks he's crazy. It was just nuts. And I said, no, he wasn't. And I tried to explain to her. I think I got through her a little bit. She's still alive, you know, in her nineties, but the family was really impacted. So I can, I can, I can empathize with him doing, you know, it just, he had a family and he, he thought he was trying to protect them, but unfortunately for history, you know, it, it uh, he ended up serving uh, the conspirators cause because he lied and he was charged with perjury later, but uh, he knew who Clay Bertrand was. He knew that was Clay Shaw. I mean, he gave this ridiculous description of him at one point where he was really short and just, he was constantly playing games, you know, because he was trying to, again, trying to protect himself. And, um, but this book, I think in our book, when, especially when talking to Dean, Dean the third talks about going to the, uh, the alpha 66 camps, the anti-Castro camps as a kid with his father. So you know, we have a lot of information in this book that you're never going to find anywhere else. Well, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your theory on the Cuban connection, but we start here in New Orleans. You, so you have, again, you, Dean Andrews gets a call from Clay Burcham, which is Clay Shaw. And we want to dig into a little bit about who Clay Shaw is, because that's really important. The entire New Orleans connection to Oswald yeah. is being this lone gunman who just shows up and wants to be famous by killing the president, like the mainstream narrative, uh, Warren Commission narrative is so ridiculous. You know, yeah. it, it, how, how much truth is there, Don, to uh, the, the scene in, in JFK where uh, Garrison goes out and sh on the street corner and says, you see that building right there in 1963? <laughs> that was the Office yeah. of Naval Intelligence. Yeah. And next yeah. to it was the CIA. And then across the streets, the FBI. And if you look at the side office of that, yep. was the office, uh, the apartment of Lee Harvey Oswald, right? And then Guy Bannister's office. Right. Well, Oswald, yeah, Oswald's, uh, that was where the, and it's very accurate. I mean, everything about JFK is accurate. There were people that criticized him. He, he was meticulous. He did take creative license. Like, for instance, the very descriptive Kevin Bacon character, Willie O'Keefe. Mm -hmm. That was a composite figure. But it's but he's, he's a great character, but he gets the point across. You know, you're a good-looking man, Mr. Jefferson. Mr. Garrison, you better come. I mean, just great stuff that you remember. But uh, he's basically a composite of Perry Herman Russo and a couple other people. But that's the only thing. He had to change Ruth Payne's name, who's still alive, because she was going to sue him. I think he called her Ruth Williams or something. But um, other than that, everything is accurate. So when he points out those op spellings, Guy Bannister, who was a, you know, as bad as anti-communist as someone could be, 
at the time. I mean, he was extreme right, extreme anti-communist, uh, John Bird Society type. Lee Harvey Oswald had an office in, in the same building. It was just a separate entrance. And that's where his uh, Fair Play for Cuba committee address was that he was supposedly head of. So, I mean, you know, it doesn't get much more obvious than that. So, yeah, yeah that's a great scene, too, when he's pointing it out. And there's so, so it always got to me. Yeah, it's, like it's, it's, it's right there. The, the entire yeah, collusion. That's yeah, yeah, impossible yeah. to have all the if he's a lone nut who's just floating around in space that's not connected to anything. What the hell is this? Right. Exactly. And that's why the, that's why I thought your book was so interesting. And even the Dean Andrews character, because the phone call. That again, he tells Garrison about, and who else did he tell about the phone call? When, he told his know, he told his personal lawyer, and he told his uh, secretary. And his secretary very oddly uh, said, I, "I can't go to Dallas with you." I, th I thought it was strange at the time. And uh, but you know, he he so he told at least two people that we know they're very close to him, and uh, of course that he would tell the FBI and the Secret Service and the people that were questioning him, he would tell them about it as well. But they would eventually keep working on him, working on him and try to badger him into saying, well, it was the drugs you were on and uh, you hallucinated it, which is ridiculous. And and we, we have, you know, I don't want to have spoilers out, but thanks to young Dean, uh, he pointed out some things in there where he claims that his father's hospital stay wasn't uh, innocent and he's lucky he got out alive. So uh, we, we, again, we, this is information that hadn't been anywhere else. So, I don't know why they called Dean and uh, they called him on the uh, late of the afternoon of the assassination. I, I can't figure that out. I think it, it would be nice if we could, uh, could figure it out because obviously he was closer to Clay Shaw than he let on. If they, that would be the lawyer. Cause that was, that was, as he said, Bertrand sent him clients. He mostly sent him Cubans, anti-Castro Cubans and the gay caballeros, the gay boys. Uh, why he was sending those people to him, I don't know. I think can only be explained in the fact that they were all being manipulated. You know, that Dean had some government contracts, obviously Clay Shaw did, and this was part of the assignment. You know, these guys are all supposed to, and they were probably told all different things. I know Dean may have been told, hey, you know, these guys are planning to kill the president, and so keep an eye on them. And obviously Oswald was told that, I think. And they all may have been told that. So I think that they, they just played themselves off against each other, but there's no question, Burton, as you see, there's another great scene in JFK where um, the officer Haggis Porst, I can't remember, it's a very long name, the, the, and then he, uh, when he was questioning Clay Shaw after he was first arrested, any aliases, and he said Clay Burton, and he wrote it down, but they wouldn't let him introduce that at trial. Remember the great scene, Kevin Costner, that's my case, and he said, well, if that's your case, Jimbo, you don't have a case or something, and uh, but that's accurate, because that, that was a very important uh See, but we, you know, we have more information in there about. It. I, obviously, he was. Uh, that was his alias, and they they went into the the French Quarter and the uh, where all you know all the, the 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 gay figures of the time were. And he was this Clay Bertrand fellow was way well known, and that's why. And we we talk about how you know these people that are associated with Oswald. I mean, they're they and I forget the exact connections in my head. They're associated with Oswald and Ferry, and but you know people can read the book, but it's fascinating because. At the time Garrison began his investigation, two of them were living together as roommates next door to Clay Shaw. And again, so I mean, and they had these so these 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 so many connections. And Shaw has Shaw had connections to Dr. Alvin Ochsner at uh, the Ochsner Clinic. Now, the Ochsner Clinic was a famous health clinic, healthcare clinic in New Orleans that serviced a lot of third world dictators. The CIA would shut a lot of these people there if they needed medical care at Ochsner Clinic. Well, Lee Harvey Oswald's best friend in high school, Edward Vogel. Now, again, this is a first. I, I was the first one. I got in touch with his family. His sister's Sweetie Pie and Cookie. You know, <laughs> that's their names. And uh, they were really cool. And uh, I have, I report, I don't want to spoil what they said, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's pretty obvious that his death was very suspicious. It took place in the Oxford Clinic. And I think he was 32 years old. And uh, so, you know, it, it, Clay Shaw had, Really, he had, had enough ties to Oxner where Oxner had a, a special office in the trademark where Shaw was a director of. So these guys are all connected. And he goes to Permindex, the shadowy. If you watch the Parallax View, that movie with Warren Beatty, which was kind of a fictionalized representation of Permindex, uh, they described it as an international assassination bureau. But Clay Shaw was the director or one of the top officials in Permindex. And you had curious figures. You had like somebody that was a uh, very close to Adolf Hitler at one point was was in Permindex. 
You had the guy that was the president of Hungary that was in Permendex. So you had a lot of people that were also tied to uh, Opus Dei, you know, the the uh, the, the Masonic order in the in uh, Italy, where that Roberto Calvi, you know, was found, God's banker was hung, hung under uh, Blackfriars Bridge a long time ago, hanging there. So these these are really, there are a lot of very strange connections that Shaw had. And uh, the idea that he was some kind of Conley philanthropist, no, he was, he was, he was connected to everybody. And uh, it's, uh, they did it, Alverson did a good job in the movie, you put it, but I think we, you know, we, we really, this is for people that want to know more because we really, peeled back the layers and, and just kind of showed, detailed exactly what his connections were. Well, Mr. Jeffries, can I ask you this? Um, have you found evidence that George H.W. Bush had some kind of connection with Permandex? Because a lot of people over the years um, think that Permandex was the kind of the, the, the fake corporation that hired the, the assassins and things like that. Have you found the connection with Poppy uh, Bush? I, I No, I have not found the direct and, and the Bush thing is, uh, I'm certainly no fan of the Bushes and they were, uh, they're tied into a lot of things, but, uh, and there's a whole sect of people that believe George H.W. Bush was, a, I mean, you know, the guy that I had on my show a couple of times, John Hankey, I think he's the one that believes George H.W. Bush was a gunman in the Dallas records building. And I told him, I said, really, they would you think they would hire, <laughs> they would, they would hire somebody like that. And uh, does, does that make sense? That to me, but, but with the permanent, with the permanent uh, angle itself, because he gets lumped in with that. I, I don't even mean, yes, John Hankey. And then other people, I can't, uh, I forget the, the name. There was another author that I talked to a long time ago. He kind of proposed the picture showing a, a figure that looked like George H.W. Bush. Yeah, a lot of people, yeah. said, I'm talking about Permandex, the actual yeah, entity yeah. itself. He gets no, kind of, he gets lumped in with that. I didn't, couldn't find anything really no. to send to you. I think maybe the other no. researchers that were helping. Okay, so you didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't. Because again, people got to remember, I mean, George H.W. Bush was not that, he was a pretty young man in 1963. And I, and, you know, Shaw went back to Permandex, uh, you know, back to the 50s. So he would have been right. even younger if he was associated with that. I, I don't, I don't know how powerful a figure George H. W. Bush was at that time. You know, the George George Bush of the CIA. He, he's. But do you he think seems, he was in the? Do you think he was in the CIA then? Because how could he actually become the head of the CIA in nineteen? That was always right. my problem. Is right, all of a sudden right. he becomes the head of the CIA in nineteen seventy five without having any prior connection with the agency right. at all. Right. That right. was well, the thing. Yeah. Well, you you people like Porter Goss, who was a congressman that was just, you know, people have alleged he had connections and they both they both probably did have some kind of connections that we didn't know. But so Bush, they, you know, there's there's so many of these undercover assets we don't know. I mean, we have, you know, recently it's uh, come out and I've tried to find a source for it. Chris, maybe you can help me on that for the next book. But uh, I, uh, you know, there there was alleged now that Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff for uh, for oh, Trump yeah. was was an FBI asset working in the White House, tape recording him. So I can't find evidence for that. So somebody like a George H.W.S. could certainly have been any of these guys could be doing undercover work in Congress or anywhere else. And you see, and that's what that's what my whole theory of the New Orleans uh, ground level players is based on. I think they were all you know being manipulated and reporting back to somebody, and and they probably didn't even certainly somebody like Jack Ruby. I mean, look at him; he just. How did they get him to do what he did? I mean, I, th I think, again, they did a real job on him, but he who knows what he was told. But uh, I think these guys, David Ferry was another one who had obviously was very messed up and could have been told a million things. And the, the thing is interesting about the New Orleans group is that, you know, studying them all, every one of them would have would have been very anxious to participate in the assassination of, of Kennedy. They all hated him, with the single exception of Lee Harvey Oswald. Right. There's no evidence. There's no evidence that, that Oswald didn't. It was anything but a fan of JFK. So, all the other ones that could have, they just weren't. They weren't stable enough to use. They were being manipulated. They weren't real conspirators, but they definitely would have supported it. And after it happened, I who knows? They they were all scared. Most of them ended up dying, translate. So they probably didn't. weren't You know, maybe they understood they had been betrayed. Maybe Dean Andrews knew that he'd been betrayed. I don't. I don't know. And, uh, you know, Oswald probably, you know, didn't live long enough, I guess, to realize how betrayed he was. But that's, you know, what, what, what my, how my theory goes. I think all these people were being used. And for years, researchers keep looking 
And our, our book is focusing on the ground level because I think that's important to understand what it was. But, you know, I think that all of these people, with the exception of Shaw, were irrelevant in terms of who killed JFK. I think they were all working for them in this in the case, doing whatever they were doing, mudding the waters. But I think the real powers were, were much, much higher up. Right. So, so Don, uh, first, I was going to thank you for taking the time to discuss this topic. And uh, I haven't read the book yet. I intend to. But the title really catches your name. And thank you for clearing <laughs> up that confusion, because I was thinking yeah. of What's this referring to? Laying down some pipe on this bimbo red <laughs> But uh, yeah. I'm sure it's great. But yeah, I was curious if you could comment more on the David Ferry connection because he was like mm -hmm. a real life human hairless, wasn't he? And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, he was. He yeah, was. Alopecia, which probably was weird. Um, if yeah. He was flying you around and you saw this guy with a wig and fake eyebrows on. Uh, yeah, but yeah. Uh, what, could you comment on his connection to Carlo Marcello and the, the mob in New Orleans? Because if I'm not mistaken, when RFK kicked Marcelo out of the country once, this guy flew him back, right? Yeah, yeah. He was, he was Marcelo's personal pilot, but he also flew for the CIA. And again, I think, uh, and Dean Andrews uh, III, my friend, claims that Carlos Marcelo saved his father's life. He thinks that's the only reason he wasn't killed, because Marcelo told Now, again, I, I don't think the mob, the mob might have been used in a, in a minor role, as JFK says, I, I think at a, at a lower level. They might have been, they may have used some of their, certainly their assets, because uh, especially at that time when dealing with Cuba, it's hard to know sometimes where the mafia begins and the CIA ends. You know, there was a lot of overlap there. So uh, Marcelo was certainly, and again, yeah, Marcelo is another one who certainly would have loved to have seen both Kennedys dead. All those big mobsters would have. I just don't think those guys had the power to pull something light off. But, but Ferry, Ferry was uh, in, on the day of the assassination. That was his uh, alibi. You know, he was sitting in court with uh, Carl with Carlos Marcella at his trial. So uh, he certainly wasn't there in, in Dallas participating in the assassination. But uh, so I, I think again, I think that the the mafia is kind of like uh, the cash, the Cuban question, where it kind of muddies the water a little bit because uh, I, I think the the real the the only people that had the power to kill Kennedy to kill the president of the United States and to control the entire press from the, from the very beginning. And 60 years later to he'll control it all were the same powers we see doing these other huge events, 9-11 and you know, things like that along the, uh, in the following decades. And th these are people that I think that the upper levels and I think the, the, the major players probably were in the Pentagon and the CIA, but uh, you know, th these are people that are, and, but uh, you know, one, one thing we have in the book and uh I'll give a little teaser out, but uh, John Barber, you know, when he, uh, my friend, he, uh, when uh, Garrison chose to give an interview after the Shaw trial, he didn't choose to give an interview with uh, any big network. He didn't choose to give an interview with all, even Oliver Stone. He taught, he wanted to talk to John Barber and John Barber was the only one who he had hours and hours of tape. And he used a lot of that for the Garrison tapes, which is a great documentary made. And then as a, his uh, second documentary made much later, uh, the uh, the American media and the second assassination of, of John F. Kennedy, which is just probably the best thing ever done on the assassination in terms of a documentary. But when he was talking to J Garrison, he asked him at one point, said, you know, who who do you think was like the, the main player here? Who do you think was the guy that was the, you know, the guy that gave the orders? And Garrison claimed he thought it was Averill Harriman. And Avril Harriman's, you know, is a career diplomat, and but he's he was one of these guys that would be probably high up in the Bilderbergers and the CFR and everything. If there's Illuminati, that kind of thing, and uh, so that's true. I don't know, but that gives you an idea where he thought the the you know the the orders came from, and that would have been like the real internationalists, the globalists, the the financiers, the one percent, and uh, so I think that's probably who he, that's. I think that's who. The only ones who can order something like that. So, but again, I don't know, but I, I just, I don't think it was uh, the mafia and rogue CIA agents where a lot of, a lot of these uh, anti-Castro Cubans, I, I don't think that uh, those were the assassins. Let, let's stay on that line of logic, Don. I want to get your thoughts on this because this is interesting. This little, this little cul-de-sac of history, because you're talking about the, the lineage of the anti-Kennedy sentiment. If we are to believe the timeline uh, you know, of course, you get the Bay of Pigs and the firing of Alan Dulles and so many of the top officials and, and the, the Joint Chiefs and, uh, you know, the CIA. 
Kennedy comes out, takes responsibility, didn't give air cover to the anti-Castro forces. How long was Operation Mongoose, was that a continuing thing in past the Bay of Pigs? Was that something that stopped after the the botched attempt of, of the overthrow of Castro in Cuba in, in October of uh, 19? Was it October of 61? Yeah, it was well, no, it was uh, it was earlier than that, I think. Okay, because well, this it, October it, was the Cuban Missile Crisis. 62. April of six, I think it was April sixty. It was it was right after he entered office. It was very okay. Yeah, so. so right after he, it was a so if you watch the movie uh, JFK, and then if you watch actually, you get a little bit of this same uh, references in the movie Nixon that Oliver Stone also did. Because Nixon says, uh, you know, he's talking about Howard Hunt and some of these other figures yeah. that were hired by the White House that Nixon didn't know about. And he said, I know who he is and I know who he, what he tracks back to. And you know what that means? It's like track two was this this you know, this plan that was set up by the Eisenhower administration and the CIA to knock off uh, different world or different leaders in these in the South American countries. Well, actually, it was global. It was an assassination program. And uh, that was a continuation of the policies. Kennedy takes over, basically absorbs it, and then the Bay of Pigs fails. Kennedy doesn't send uh, air cover. So you get, at least in my mind, if, you, if you're following the line of logic that he's killed by the Central Intelligence Agency, military industrial complex, deep state, which really, in, in my mind, is connected to high finance, there is no separation. They're, this, they're basically the same yeah. thing. Uh, because of their origin stories. So I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, so does does the it, the New Orleans connection start as an anti-Kennedy, you know, anti-Castro movement? And does it, because it doesn't make any sense that, that, that it comes out of, this assassination comes out of there, the genesis is there, but then look at our policy towards Cuba afterwards. It's, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's that's again why I point out all the time, and I think that I think I'm the only one in the critical community that does it because I think again to look, I think the whole Cuba thing is a smoke smokescreen, and I think you know my theory that I developed that I, William I think agrees with it mostly, but uh, this is you know pretty much my baby that I think that uh, those those figures all and there's tons of these you know Cuban figures and Cuban names that are associated with this, especially around Oswald. But they're around New Orleans, and I think they were they were it was designed that way to make people think that the assassination was either by Castro, who was mad at Kennedy for supporting uh, you know, efforts to assassinate him, which of course he never did. The CIA and the mafia were going behind his back, and he stopped them as soon as he found out about it. Or they were anti-Castro figures who wanted to kill him because uh, they resented him for his failure to uh, go all out at the Bay of Pigs. So, and I think as you pointed out, I, I'm the only one that mentions, okay, well, what happened after the assassination? If he was killed because of, of Cuba, Cuba died as a campaign issue after that. Literally, Cuba and Castro were not mentioned really at all during the 1960s after the assassination. LBJ, who would have been placed in there to, to try to go take out Castro, right? He never tried to. The CIA stopped trying to assassinate Castro. He outlived them all. Uh, Nixon, Mr. Anti-Communist, he never tried to, uh, to, to overthrow Castro. So if that was their goal, they failed miserably because Castro, again, outlived all of them. He stayed in power. So that's why I, th I think it's a smokescreen and it's designed to, to get people looking in the wrong direction. It's something like the mafia. You know, if, if you could prove the mafia killed Kennedy, the mafia is irrelevant now at this point because the entire government is organized crime. I mean, you have, you have the, you have <laughs> the Bush, yeah, yeah, you have the Bush and Clinton. You have the, those kind of crime families. Obama. Don, it's he, like Saudi Arabia 9/11 being a smoke. Yes, screen, right? yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Huh. It's exactly like that. Saudi Arabia for 9/11, exact same kind of thing. And uh, so, you know, or you know, even more recently, COVID. It's like the the lab leak theory out of Wuhan. That, you know, the Chinese, you know, released this. That, 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 these, these were, I think, you know, limited hangouts and designed to get people to look in the wrong direction when the truth is somewhere else. But I, I think, you know, we just um, just look at history and what happened afterwards. And uh, our our policy towards, although we kept up the embargo, the disastrous embargo on Cuba for decades, it's not like we supported them or anything, but we never attempted to topple Castro. And again, he stayed in power and he, he ended up outliving all of them. He was in power for longer and lived longer. So I, I don't know how that could have been a success. So, but again, if you look at what did change, 
our Vietnam policy obviously changed. First and foremost, on the surface, that was the most obvious reason, because JFK, we know, wanted to pull out of Vietnam, as NSAM 263 shows that. And again, if you want a conspirator in the White House, I would nominate McGeorge Bundy, National Security Advisor, because he's the one that wrote NSAM 273 the day before the assassination. And JFK never saw it and would have fired him for writing it. He would have never signed it. He had to know he would never sign it because it completely uh, you know, turned around the recent policy he had just started of, of uh, withdrawing troops from Vietnam and getting out of there and let them win the war. So, you know, why would somebody do that knowing that his boss wouldn't approve it, that it would end his career? Well, if he knew that uh, JFK wasn't going to be around to see it or sign it, which he wasn't, and LBJ would happily do it, then that might explain it. So I think we need to look at things like Vietnam or Israeli policy, you know, behind the scenes, JFK, and now with the Israel and Hamas and everything and the secret Jewish tunnels and all the crazy stuff that's propped up in the last month or so, uh, the focus has been on Israel more than usual, but the last president to stand up to Israel was JFK. Behind the scenes, he was engaged in a huge battle with David Ben-Gurion, the president of Israel, over them developing nuclear weapons. Ever since then, no president has stood up to them. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't think he was killed because of that, but it might have been a contributing factor. I don't know. So if you look at that, and certainly the CIA, JFK was in battle with the CIA and wanted to, you know, privately told people he, he wanted to shatter it in a million pieces to the winds. He was seriously considering abolishing the CIA. So you look at all that. I mean, those are some, some powerful people. And all that changed dramatically after the assassination, unlike the Cuban policy, which you know, didn't change it at all. Vietnam changed. CIA just grew more powerful uh, and kept up their dirty tricks and uh, until the church committee, and then they went right back to it in the 80s. Uh, they're still doing it today. And then you had the uh, Israel, which became just you know, they, to the point where they could have the USS Liberty attack in 67. Uh, and LBJ was such an Israel first, or he, he swept it under the carpet and really you couldn't talk about it for decades. Now you can, but for a long time, you were anti-Semitic if you mentioned it. So I think those are the things, if you look at those, and then there's the, the Federal Reserve question, whether or not he right. really, you know, that the uh, the the silver certificates and everything that he had printed, uh, you know, behind the scenes. And I'm, I'm the foremost champion, I think, in, in the world for uh, Joe Kennedy Sr. I love the guy. I think he was a real American hero, JFK's dad. He's got an awfully bad press and almost all of it comes from CIA or mafia sources. A lot of lies. He, was a, he wasn't a bootlegger and all that. He certainly wasn't in with the mafia. That's it's all ridiculous stuff. But they, uh, in, in reality, he was uh, good friends with James Forrestal, who was pushed out of a window at Bethesda Naval Hospital. <laughs> he was good friends with Joe McCarthy, who I'll have a lot more about in the upcoming American memory hole. I think was another genuine American hero, another one that was killed at Bethesda Naval Hospital. And he was one of the first critics of the Federal Reserve behind the scenes. So I, I can't believe that young JFK and young RFK, when they're eating at the, at, the, at the dinner table and they were notorious for discussing politics, I can't believe their father wasn't sharing his opinion about the Federal Reserve and things like that. So I think, I think JFK was acutely aware of what the Federal Reserve really was. Now, whether he was going to, how much he was going to reform it, I don't know. But if, you know, printing those silver certificates might've been the first, uh, Salvo, he was firing there. So there are a lot. I think I would look at all those places before I certainly I would look at the mafia or the uh, or CAG, anybody, anything to do with Cuba. Well, if you, I think if you look at causation, I mean, one of the speeches that he made, American University, I think it was June 1963. Yes. yes. If you want to hear real uh, rhetoric on peace uh, yeah. and a just a magnificent piece of presidential yeah. speech history. Yep. Uh, go back to that speech. It's it's beautiful. And yep. in, in, in a time of Cold War tensions, just right. I mean, not even a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis on the brink of yep. all out nuclear exchange. And you have this president reaching out and saying, you know, we, we all inhabit, inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future and we're all mortal. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about a direct uh, shot across the bow of the military industrial complex. And one thing that gets really overlooked a lot was right before the assassination, there was the uh, actual carrying out of U.S. policy of the assassination of South Pre uh, Vietnamese President Ziem. Yes. Okay. Kennedy didn't authorize that. As a matter of fact, it yep. made him sick. Yes. But that that was us. We, we or helped orchestrate the murder of South Vietnamese President Ziem because he wasn't, I guess, I don't, we have a team player about... Uh, Go, you know, the, the aggression of, of that we wanted to show in the war against the North Vietnamese. And 
uh, again, you know, Ho Chi Minh. I think there's some, there's something to that, which is, you know, everything is language. So I think they, are they sending a message to Kennedy? Uh, yeah. Was that part of that? You know, because he did not authorize that. It's the president, especially nowadays, we can see is not truly in control. I think you're probably as in control as you want to risk your life to be. And yeah. JFK didn't. I don't think that set well with him. If you look into his presidency, I don't think it's no. he, you talk about him wanting to. He That's an actual quote. I got a T-shirt that says that it says smash the CIA into a yeah. thousand pieces yeah. and scatter it to the wind. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, with JFK. So uh, no, no president talks like that now. <laughs> right. The other, the other thing you have, Tony, and Don was commenting on it, but Kennedy issued in 63 that debt free United States notes. And you yeah. have to imagine that pissed off a lot of people, too. Yeah. And um, I have one. I know you have one, Tony, and we, most people don't even know what those are. But it just seemed like it's hard to point directly to one source of person or one group that was really severely pissed at Kennedy because he pissed off everybody. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's why if you think if you if you believe like a lot of us do that there is something like an Illuminati or whatever, some, something above it all, those would be the people that it would work. And somebody like Avril Harriman, who was, by the way, Avril Harriman was right in the middle of that uh, overthrow of, and, and assassination of Jim in Vietnam. And, he, and, you know, Kennedy was was heart sick about it. And that was earlier in November. It was only like uh, 20 days before he was killed. And I think he he really started, wow, these people are playing for keeps when they did that because they did. It was obviously against his wishes. He didn't, you know, he he did not want him. He, he considered him friendly, a friend there. He didn't want him uh, overthrown. So uh, he may have realized at that point, wow. And you're right about the American University speech. That is, I, I consider that the greatest speech ever uh, delivered by an American president and uh, certainly the greatest peace speech. And when you when you listen to it, it's it's incredible because it's unequivocal. Uh, it, it is just, it's peace. What is I don't mean, what do you mean? Peace in our time? No, peace of all time. Not just a Pax Americana enforced on the world by Americans' weapons of war. Uh, this, and, and again, he was the first one to look at our enemies. At the time, they were the Soviets. He looked at them in human terms. He said, these, these people care about their children. They breathe the same air. I mean, nobody's, I've, no other politicians ever talk that way about they they demonize their enemies to the extent where they actually don't think they care about their children. They actually, you know, think that that's, and that's Kennedy was just, you know, unbelievably, uh, you know, aware and astute intellectually to be able to, to, to say something like that. And again, and again, he got that from his father. His father was an, a, a, one of the foremost anti-war activists of his time. RFK Jr. was the first one. I didn't know until he said it, that our, his father was an anti-war activist in World War I, along with so many others. And of course, in World War II, he gave one of the greatest speeches. I, I don't have the exact quote I've ever heard where he, he basically said, I'd like to see, uh, I'd like to have any um, American father or parent, uh, Tell me one good reason. What would be your reason for sending your son off to a foreign war to die, possibly die? So what, what's, what would be the reason? And uh, that's that's brilliant because it distills it down to the essential. And uh, so he came from great stock and uh, his father had all the right enemies. And that's why JFK had these same powerful enemies. And that's why he's still treated differently than every other so-called liberal Democrat. You look at the even LBJ, people like that, when you look at how FDR and Wilson and Truman are treated, even down to uh, to Clinton and Carter uh, and Obama, obviously, uh, there's it's there's really no criticism allowed. Very only mild criticism. But the court historians hate Kennedy's. They hate all the Kennedy's. And I've, I've had all the quotes from them in you know, in hidden history and everything else. The, the left hates the Kennedy's probably more than the right does. And uh, they're treated differently. Saul Alinsky said, no enemies on the left. Well, they must not consider the Kennedys on the left because uh, they definitely consider them enemies. Yeah, Joe Kennedy was ambassador to Great Britain during the time of uh, the lead off into World War II and was never never forgiven for his stance of trying to to broker peace and hold out yep. and not get involved right. in, a, in, a foreign, in a foreign war. And of course, his son, uh, John F. Kennedy, was part of the America First movement along with Charles Lindbergh and people for all this history has been brushed aside because of the, you know, the the mythos of the good war and it's World War II and all of that that, that gets laid on top of the court historians, you know, that paved the way for the narrative. But that's not really how it was. And that you start, you know, even for the longest time, I, 
you know, it was painted in my mind that Joe Kennedy was a little off, you know, and then a peaser. Yeah. You know, yeah. when young when you're younger and you're reading history because he's an yeah. appeaser, you know, it's just yeah. it's such nonsense. And uh, yeah, he did come from good stock. And of course, the only, there's only two presidents in history that put that printed Treasury notes direct right. from the Treasury. Uh, that's uh, Abraham Lincoln and Kennedy. They were both shot in the head in public. Yeah. All right. So that's <laughs> right. It's, it's something that's how I got that quote from Jim Mars because he put two. And by the way, uh, Lincoln's on the note that Kennedy printed. Um, so, I mean, just, just a lot of things there and you're right, Don, it's gotta be, it, it's like the, 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 whoever at the top is pushing this through is using these self-interested parties like the anti-Castro right-wingers and some of the extremists in, in New Orleans. It's why the New Orleans connection in your book, Pipe the Bimbo in Red, is so important because it, it, once you connect that Oswald is not alone, and as a matter of fact, he's not only not alone, he's connected to a, a, a group of people that, it, it, on the surface, if you're supposed to believe the mainstream media that he's supposed to be mortal enemies with, which is the uh, anti-Castro right, because uh, Lee Harvey Oswald is supposed to be this, uh, you know, pro-communist, anti-American, holding his uh, $12 mail order rifle, the Monlicker Carcano and the Communist Manifesto and that stupid photo that, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I want to hear your take on that, too. But, you know, let's go for a second. Just talking about that rifle. You've held the, that rifle, haven't you, Don? Yeah, yeah, a, Don. Uh, you held it was the German Mauser, right? You held that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> no, I didn't get. I didn't get to say that one. <laughs> no, I saw the Italian. I saw the one where there's no, there's no paper trail. There's no chain of possession for it, so it couldn't have been legally entered into the to the record in an honest courtroom. But uh, yeah, no, I as I was, uh, I think it was 18, and uh, when I was uh, working for Mark Lane's uh, group, Citizens Submitted Inquiry, I got to go to the archives. I got my little researcher card, and uh, uh, they, you know, I had a personal tour, and they let me hold the, the alleged weapon and the magic bullet. And they brought JFK's clothes out to me. And I can see where the bullet holes were. So I've certainly seen it in enough pictures. And then I got to go to a separate room and I had a, a private view. And I could stay there as long as I want to watch this Zapruder film. And I could freeze each frame, you know, and just kind of look at it as much as I want. So it was, it was cool. So we had the experience. But uh, yeah, I mean, and that's the... It, it's it's just important to realize the extent because again if you if you look and I try to tell people this even beyond our Cuba policy not changing I mean I mean our Cuba policy yeah not becoming what they would want it to be if they killed Kennedy they would have wanted to overthrow Castro that's why they would have done it uh, they didn't do that so the the Cuba policy stayed the same so even outside of that how you know, the, even the mafia anti-Castro Cubans rogue CIA agents these these people did not they certainly couldn't have got the secret service to stand down in Daly Plaza they couldn't have touched the autopsy the the, the pathologists at Bethesda and get them to they, they couldn't have done all that and they couldn't have got the media to cover up from the very beginning and still 60 years later uh that you know, involves obviously people at the highest levels that control all these things. And that's, I think, what's happened. And that's why people, I, I don't believe in this, you know, kind of dumbed down conspiracy or a benign cover up or any of that stuff. No, this was, this was huge. This was, this was the assassination of a president. And uh, from the very beginning, they were on board. You know, I pointed out many times NBC News, I think the day after the assassination, I, I published it in Hidden History where they agreed in writing that we will publish only news that is consistent with the FBI's report on the assassination. That was one of the three networks at the time. And certainly the other two didn't have to put it because you can look at CBS and Walter Cronkite and ABC as well. And they, they never you know published anything or reported anything that was opposed to the conclusions of their, the, 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 uh, what the government was saying. So uh, I, I just, I think we need to look higher and look at a really, really powerful conspiracy and, I think that's why this this book is important because it shows what uh, that the the entire New Orleans plot plot was a like a a substrata of that was just something that this this is this is what we're doing we're kind of setting up a separate little conspiracy here if everything blows apart okay that's who we'll look at we'll look at these people and look at their connections to the Cubans the and maybe the mafia maybe Marcelo or something the worst case scenario would maybe they would have gone and make you know Carlos Marcelo or the, like the, the the godfather who ordered it or so, ordered the hit or something but they were never going to go into the uh they were never going to go out to George Bundy or the secret service or or, or Alan Dulles or uh Curtis LeMay in the Pentagon and people like that who I think were probably you know you know very active conspirators right so, so 
Don, where I was raised in Taiwan, there was this huge anti-Kennedy sentiment <laughs> growing up. But the, the, the more I've learned about him, the more I've grown to like him because it's even in the small details. He took a stand against things based on principle. For instance, yeah. I didn't know this for a long time, but did you see the movie Oppenheimer? Uh, I haven't seen it, though. Okay, well, apparently Louis Strauss went after Oppenheimer quite a bit, stripped him of his security clearance, and Kennedy was the young senator who opposed his nomination um, mm -hmm. as U.S. Secretary of Commerce at the time. And it's kind of a hidden gem at the end. And he's like, who voted against me? And mm. someone uh, who was working for him, like an intern, said it was this young senator um, named Kennedy. He didn't like the way you treated Oppenheimer. And <laughs> I just thought that was magnificent. So oh, Kennedy was he was a he was a great he was a uh, if you look at his record, you know, he was a always in support of all the, uh, the colonial movements in all the countries in third, you know, in Latin America and Africa, he supported all the nationalist movements there. He didn't like when the CIA were putting puppets in and so forth. And, and so he was, he was going to clash with those people. And that's why, you know, when he, when he started the Alliance for Progress, you know, he had government programs that made sense, the Peace Corps and the Alliance for Progress, they were idealistic. And the idea was to, the Alliance for Progress was to get Latin America to emulate our system, but to, you know, to let them choose their own leaders. And of course the CIA and American government didn't want that to happen. And so they had to you know, prop up these 10 port pot dictators everywhere. But he was a, you know, and I, my book crimes and cover-ups in American politics, 70, 76, 1963. I have a lot in there about him and his book profiles and courage, which is uh, uh, still a great read. And one of the people he talked about was Robert Taft. He was one of the last great Republicans. And, uh, his the reason why he's included his profile in courage was his opposition to the Nuremberg trials. JFK himself spoke out against the Nuremberg trials. And there's nobody today, except for me, when I wrote that book to whatever audience I have that that speaks out. Everybody thinks, oh, that's the greatest form of justice. No, it was terrible. It was it was the legalized lynching of the uh, losers by the victors. And never in the history of war had uh, the victors put the the losers on trial in a court of alleged law. And JFK and Robert Taft, Eisenhower's brothers, people like that at the time recognized what a travesty that was. Now, no one will speak out against it. And people want, you know, Nuremberg trials for COVID. No, no you don't want have a good trial. So I have something based on Nuremberg. That was ridiculous. But we had, you know, you had like a, a, a leading Soviet guy that was sending people to Siberia that was, uh, you know, was presiding over some of these trials. So uh, he was, you know, he was he was a profile in courage himself. And I. In this book, Pipe the Bimon Reb, we also published as a separate appendix a, a credible letter that a 22, then 22-year-old JFK wrote to his father. Uh, I think it was uh, about 1939, 1940, but it was se several years before Israel was created. But he's touring the Middle East, and uh, he it is it's just an astute analysis of the situation. And it's very, you can tell by his tone and to his father that they probably talked about Jews a lot. You know, they probably talked about Israel a lot. You, you can tell from the tone of the letter. It's pretty obvious. And uh, that, uh, and it would be, I'm surprised it's allowed to exist out there without it being attacked as anti-Semitic, but he's very even-handed in it. And he talks about what a disaster this is going to be if you create a Zionist state there. And again, he's a 22-year-old guy, and obviously his father agrees with him as well. So his father, I'm sure, Behind closed doors was, you know, one of the early critics of uh, this is ridiculous to set this state up there. And uh, so it's important to just realize how different he was. He was so different from all these other liberal Democrats that came out of the set. He was a light years away from Truman and Roosevelt and people. And that's why they hated him. You know, Harry Truman despised him. Eleanor Roosevelt hated him. They did not want to support him when he ran for president. And again, because they hated his father. And they knew they they saw what some of his speeches in the Senate were, and they they knew what he so he and when he came into office he uh, he kept up that streak of independence and uh, you know unfortunately I guess it, it finally cost him his life. Well, let's not forget hey, who Robert F. Kennedy worked for his brother worked yeah. for he he worked for Joe McCarthy. Yep. He yep. worked for Senator Joe McCarthy. Yes. So he the did. Ken, the Kennedys had a relationship with the most outspoken anti-communist of the 20th yep. century and a working yep. relationship yep. with him. Okay. So that's, that's big. I think that gets overlooked a lot too. It is, so Ken Kennedy was just different. I mean, you, you probably saw uh, through a lot of the, the party lines and was more of an, 
really, I think he was fixated on what worked and what was right. You know, and again, it's, he's, a, he's a human being, so he's going to be flawed, but nobody speaks that way anymore. No, no, there's nobody has an open enough mind to, to, I mean, again, that j- tail gunner Joe McCarthy would have been the most right wing uh, figure yeah. at the time in the 50s. And then you have, you know, uh, RFK working for him. And that's that's something I'm sure that was discussed. And I want to say there was more connection there with the with the McCarthy. There was. McCarthy, McCarthy was uh, the godfather to uh, RFK's oldest child, Kathleen. Now, they've tried to dismiss that. But no, he was. And he dated a, a couple of JFK sisters. Right. And uh, they, they were good friends, as was Jim Forrestal. Again, they had that connection where uh, Forrestal was pushed out of a window at Bethesda Naval Hospital. And, uh, uh, and McCarthy went into, after McCarthy claimed, or McCarthy wrote a pamphlet saying that how they killed Forrestal. He was actively saying they killed him. And then he goes into Bethesda himself with a knee problem at age 48 and dies two days later. No autopsy ever performed. And then, of course, JFK had his autopsy performed at Bethesda. So uh, I guess that's where patriots go to die or be... <laughs> Staying out of Bethesda at all costs. Uh, Chris, you had something to say? Yeah, Don, uh, what can you tell us about Jack Martin in the real-life X-Files? Because Paratruthers kind of branched out into the UFO phenomenon, which I'll I'll actually tie it around because uh, apparently, uh, according to the research of uh, the great Peter Sikosh, he was able to find documents where even Joseph McCarthy was asking about um yes. like things like Roswell and UFOs yes. but with Jack Martin Jack Martin and uh the other gentleman's name escapes me but he was played by Ed Asner in uh, JF oh, guy ba- guy ba- guy, ba- guy Bannister. they were a part of the original X-Files is that correct yeah there and is, is there and the I, I think I got that from Peter yeah I don't uh I think that is in uh, is in uh the American memory hole, I think. I don't think that's in the pipe of the memory. Yeah. I could be wrong because I was right. I was kind of writing them simultaneously, but, and, and there's a little overlap there, but yeah, Jack Martin's a fascinating character and he, uh, he had pseudonyms. And the most amazing thing is uh, there's no, I don't think he could be alive because he'd be, you know, 110 or something or 120 or, and, but there's no record of his death. And he was, he a, died you know, in 1990, 1997. I was able to pinpoint you it. You were able Bob, to find uh, that? Oh, Bob okay. Wilson. Yeah. I think I passed okay. it along to you. But, okay, but yeah, it's very hard to find like, how he died and things like yeah, that. But he, yeah. he, but he was, a, and we have a lot on him in the book of talking, trying to help Garrison and everything. He was a strange character, a frightening figure to a lot of people. A lot of people yeah. say that that kind of it's not entirely accurate when Bannister Ed Asner is beating Jack Jack Lemon played uh, Martin in the movie when he pistol whips him and everything. It makes it look like he's kind of. Uh, Guy Bannister's, you know, wimpy sycophant or something, but I don't think it was really that way because there's there's evidence that indicates a lot of people were scared of Martin. He was a very kind of a strange figure. He was wanted for uh, a couple of murders, I think, and they just kind of dismissed the cases. So we have we have some old background in the book, but he's one of the ones that uh, a lot of these characters were. You know, it wasn't just David Ferry. It wasn't. Uh, and I have a lot more about uh, Guy Bannister in the book as well. These these people were interesting on their own. But again, I think they were just that interest is just kind of human interest and maybe why they were picked to play the roles they played. But I just think I just, you know, a lot of people, again, in the research community tend to think of these people like as real conspirators. These were not the people that were plotting to actually kill the president. Maybe some of them thought they were and would have supported doing it, but they were, I think, working against each other. We're coming up here on the uh, end of the show. And I I was thinking we went back to the beginning. We were talking about just general assassination overview and uh, the timeline of, of Oswald, uh, you know, being in custody. And then following that, you know, the next day you have uh, getting assassinated and murdered by Jack Ruby. Does, does Ruby have a new Orleans connection in any way? Um, Not so much a new Orleans connection. So it is kind of an unusual, I guess that he's that, but he, uh, he, uh, but he, again, he over, he has connections with these, people in, in ways he there's in all these uh and ruby is kind of in a class of himself because ruby certainly we know ruby was an fbi informant obviously he had mob connections going back to al capone you know as a teenager he was a, a runner for al capone and uh we have uh lots of interesting connections with there but it, it, to new orleans itself I, I don't think he had a tremendous connection to new orleans so that may but he was definitely part of that group because there's no question that 
Oswald was uh, not only when he was in New Orleans, but then when he goes to Dallas, Oswald's definitely showing up at that carousel club. I have tons of people that saw him in there at Jack Ruby's club and saw him and Ruby together. And then you had Rose Sheremy who ended up uh, dying, being knocked off. But before she was, she was run off the road and, uh, uh, and was in, before the assassination. And she's the one that said uh, JFK is going to be killed and tried to you know, Sally Kirkland, who I became friends with. I have her on the air. She, she was the actress who played that in the first scene in JFK. And we've, right. uh, I've met uh, his son, her son, Michael Marcades, who I've interviewed a couple of times as well, that tells her story. And we find out she was actually shot in the head later when they claimed she would, they didn't even report that, but uh, she tried to warn of that, that they were going to be with she, while she was in the hospital after uh KFK was killed. They asked her about Oswald and Ruby after Ruby killed Oswald. And she said, did they know each other? And she laughed and said that they were lovers, you know, so that's, you know, that's take that for what it is, but uh, they were clearly, there was a connection between the two of them. And uh, so it, it's when Oswald leaves, because when he leaves New Orleans and goes to Dallas, uh, FBI agent Warren DeBreeze, we talk a lot about him in the, the book as well, Warren DeBreeze was tracking him in New Orleans and he decides to go to Dallas when Oswald does. I don't think that's a coincidence. And uh, we talked about uh, FBI agent Regis Kennedy was all over there too. And Regis Kennedy, I tried to track down his son because Dean, young Dean claims he was really good friends with him in high school, but we, we couldn't find him anywhere. We couldn't locate him. And uh, it would be interesting to see what he, uh, he thought of things. But uh, so all these players were, they were connected in different ways, socially, and in some cases, I don't know that Ruby had a connection with uh, many of the others other than Oswald, but certainly, and he may have been, when Oswald went to Dallas, that's when it may have been when Ruby was kicked in and said, you know, to do whatever they told him to do. But there's no question Oswald, and I've, I've had hidden history as well. I had a lot in there about the people that uh, saw Oswald in, in Ruby's carousel club. There's no question they knew each other. I remember in uh, Roger Stone's book, uh, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, it's really about LBJ's involvement. Uh, that's his research. There's a story in there in the book about how Ruby was actually a witness for Lyndon Johnson. Wait, if you if for a congressman, Lyndon Johnson, uh, or maybe he was why he was a Senate majority leader of some kind. He was connected in some way. Um, he he was a witness for Nixon. And yes, he got, Nixon, he got, know, yeah. And he, but he got, but he got that contact through Johnson. So when Nixon saw Ruby kill Oswald, and they flashed his name, Nixon supposedly turned pale because he knew he knew who that was and who, what the connection was. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever looked into that, Don, but I didn't know if there was. I, any... I've not. I knew there was a connection he had to Nixon, but I, I, I didn't know that. That's but again, these these people are. It's amazing. The, the, the connections that you find when you just scratch the surface between all these players that are involved in these big events of history. I mean, the explanation that the Jack Ruby, this club owner, this nightclub owner in Dallas with ties to the mob, just decided to throw his life away and go go murder Lee Harvey Oswald <laughs> so Jacqueline Kennedy didn't have to yes. testify. It's <laughs> right. so so mainstream media dumb. Like that it's like if you think about it in retro, like just look yeah. at it on the surface, like you actually reported that? Like you think yeah. that's real? It's yeah. It, it it truly this is a it's a fast this we just scratched the surface folks and then you, you don is such a well can you believe can you believe the passport survived the inferno <laughs> like yeah, exactly. jet fuel yeah, yeah. doesn't melt yeah. steel but it does on one day and on, <laughs> but it also won't kill your it won't melt your passport you know it's not if you're Muhammad Ada, no no <laughs> <laughs> well i want to i want to close out uh mr anderson do you have anything uh further for don or anything you no. want to bring up no, just thank you, Don. It's been a treat. Oh, it's, a, it's my pleasure. I appreciate talking to you guys. Chris, you got anything? Uh, yeah, Don, did you come across any kind of evidence evidence that uh, George, Poppy Bush was in Building 7 on September 11, 2001? <laughs> Ask John Hankey about that. No, I, I don't, I don't, okay, I don't. know. <laughs> no, he, 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 right? he was at the Ritz-Carlton in Washington, yeah. D.C. He's a good one, brother. Yeah, I just, yeah, he was again, having I, he was having lunch with the Ritz Carlton with the Bin Laden family. I, yeah, exactly. I, I think that you know, again, when people try to tie those kind of political figures in it directly, uh, it just I I, I don't know. I, I just I, I know you're I think you're a stretching. Yeah, I think they're you're stretching it when uh, when they do something like that. But I, I don't think that uh, uh, to the extent those people were involved, they certainly weren't being used as gunmen. You know, like, and I don't think Jackie shot. I mean, I have more and more people that that I like, that are big supporters of mine in Substack, that's the latest thing coming. There's a bunch of people that really believe Jackie 
uh, pulled the trigger on JFK. And it's like, I, what kind of, and they're really nice. I, I don't know. What I to think say this is JFK Jr. personally. I'm looking at yeah. that. Yeah, time, tra right. time traveling JFK Jr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's right. That's why the play was Q. It was Q. It was Q with a shell fix, shell toxin gun. That was the shellfish toxin gun with with William Greer's assistance. That's what it was. All right, folks. Well, Don, tell people where they can find you. And and again, thank you so much for for taking time to dive into this. Thanks for having me. It's it's great. Always great talking to you guys. Donald Jeffries Media is my website. Donald Jeffries.substack.com called I protest, just like my weekly live streaming show. Uh, that's the only place I'm not being shadow banned. So I, I urge people to support me there. I am growing there, but nowhere else. So try if you want to help me out, you can uh, follow me and subscribe to me on Substack. Awesome. Again, uh, Donald Jeffries, ladies and gentlemen, uh, donaldjeffries.media, uh, Pipe to Bimbo in red, Dean Andrews, Jim Garrison, and the conspiracy to kill JFK. Uh, thank you, Mr. Anderson. Thank you, Chris Graves, uh, for your research and uh, for your help. I appreciate it very much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, follow the podcast, Paratruth, or anywhere podcasts are found, the Art of Burn Radio transmission, Wise Wolf Gold and Silver. Go check out our monthly membership program called Wolf Pack. Uh, we're growing daily. The more people that join, the better deals I can get everybody. And let's uh, keep you out of the de-dollarization nightmare. All right, folks. And in the information war, be a paratruther. See you next time.